Christ Church, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. This morning we will uh, come to the conclusion of Romans uh, chapter 9 and verses 30 through 33. Please stand uh, for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and efficacious word. Romans 9 and verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for this portion of your word, your word which is life, your word which points us to Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, but your word which is also a word of judgment towards those who would reject him. And so we pray that today, as Christ is held up and judgment and salvation are before us, that we, by your grace, would cling to him for forgiveness, for saving righteousness, and for everlasting life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Martin Luther, the great German reformer of the 16th century Protestant Reformation, is chiefly known for nailing his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg in 1517 and making his famous Here I Stand speech four years later at the Diet of Worms in in 1521. He's also known, of course, for his hymn writing, especially uh, his paraphrase of Psalm 46, uh, entitled Ein Festeberg, or A Mighty Fortress. Lesser known, however, than his famous protests and hymn writing are his 40 theses written for the Heidelberg Disputation of 1518. The Heidelberg Disputation was a meeting of the Augustinian order. And at this particular meeting in 1518, a debate was held over Luther's 40 theses or theological statements that he had written in order to recover the gospel of Jesus Christ over and against salvation by works. The purpose of Luther's 40 theses was to show the difference between theologians of glory and theologians of the cross. Theologians of glory and theologians of the cross. What did Luther mean by theologians of glory and theologians of the cross? This is language that most of us are not familiar with. As I explain the difference, perhaps you can ask yourself which one best describes you. Theologians of glory, Luther explained, are those who believe that God works on the same terms of reciprocity that the world works on. You do something nice for me, 
and I will show you love and favor in return. This makes sense, right? It's, a, it's, it's straightforward. The, the world understands this kind of reciprocity. We're, we're used to this kind of thing. And so it is believed that this is how God relates to us. We do good things for God, as we ought to do, because He is, after all, God. And He responds with love and favor toward us. Our favor and acceptance with Almighty God is based, therefore, upon our meritorious works upon our obedience to God's law and our devotion to the church. Theologians of the cross, however, viewed things very differently. Indeed, theologians of the cross do not view salvation on human terms of reciprocity. I do good works with the expectation of favor in return. No, Theologians of the cross view salvation in terms of sovereign grace. In terms of sovereign grace. Salvation is understood by what is revealed in God's word, not what is revealed in this world. And what is revealed in God's word is not a salvation based upon imperfect works, but salvation based upon Christ's atoning death and a gift of righteousness, a gift of righteousness that meets God's standard of righteousness. Dear ones, what took place in Jerusalem on the cross 2,000 years ago is salvation on God's terms, not man's. It's salvation according to God's wisdom, not the world's. Salvation on God's terms is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. Think of it. Though innocent, Christ was condemned and cursed. Though guilty, we are forgiven and set free. This is not how the world, as it were, works. But here we see that salvation is not based on human merit, but on the substitutionary death of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To take things even further at the Heidelberg Disputation in Theses 28, Luther highlights an important distinction between human love and divine love between human love and divine love. It's one of the biggest mistakes that uh, modern pastors and theologians will, will make. They, they want to, to make God in our, in our image rather than uh, the other way around. And so we think that God's love must be the same as human love. And so we, we put these things on him and on the way that salvation works and we, we mess up the whole thing. But human love and divine love are different, Luther says. Human love is almost always drawn towards that which one finds beautiful and worthy of attention. But God's love towards sinful mankind is not like this at all. Carl Truman, in his wonderful book on Luther and the Christian life, he explains it this way, quote, Divine love, unlike human love, is not reactive, but creative. 
God does not find that which is lovely and then move out in love toward it. Something is made lovely by the fact that God first sets his love upon it. He does not look at sinful human beings and see among the mass of people some who are intrinsically more righteous or holy than others and thus finds himself attracted to them. Rather, the lesson of the cross is that God chooses that which is unlovely and repulsive, unrighteous and with no redeeming quality and lavishes his saving love in Christ upon it, end quote. Isn't this the lesson we learned last time from Paul's quoting of Hosea? That once you were not my people, but now you are my people. Once you were not my beloved, but now you are my beloved. And the whole story of of Hosea and Gomer brings out the point that God doesn't love intrinsically righteous people. He loves a holy sinful sinful people. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. God's love is a creative love. It's not a reactive love. Paul says it this way in Romans 5 and verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You will hear about a soldier throwing himself or herself upon a grenade or moving in front of uh, their fellow uh, troops to take bullets, these kinds of things. You hear about these acts of heroism. They're extraordinary. But you know, so often these things take place between those who know each other and, and trust each other and love each other and see these qualities in each other. But this is not the way that God's grace works. He doesn't look and see these marvelous intrinsic qualities and righteousness and 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 foreseen faith in us and then move towards us in love to save us no while we were yet sinners Christ died for us and in chapter 5 and verse 10 two verses later Paul writes while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Luther's theological reflections here were revolutionary in the context of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. For most in that context were indeed theologians of glory, believing that a right standing with God was based upon personal piety and good works and that God's favor was earned not freely given. Though revolutionary in his own day, Luther's ideas were not new. They were not new at all, nor were the errors he was exposing. Indeed, in his reading of Paul's letter to the Romans, which uh, we learn from his own biographical account is where the Lord opened his eyes and gave him saving faith. In his reading of the letter to Romans, Luther discovered all of these truths and not least in Romans chapter 9. For as we have seen over the past several weeks in Romans 9, Paul was laboring to show his fellow countrymen, the Jews, those who he wept over and sorrowed over because of their unbelief, 
He wanted to show them that they too possessed a theology of glory. They rejected the crucified and risen Messiah only to trust in their own spiritual privileges and national identity and good works to make them acceptable to God, to give them favor with God. We see this in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9. These spiritual privileges were not meant to be an end in themselves. They were intended to point them to Christ. But Paul, you'll remember, anticipates an objection from his fellow countrymen, the Jews, in verse 6. If Israel is lost, does this mean that God's word has failed? Have his promises to Israel been broken? And Paul says no. And he spends verses 6 through 29 explaining why. He sets forth in detail the doctrine of divine election, showing its roots in the teaching of the Old Testament. And through these verses, he makes four things clear to those who might question God's faithfulness to Israel. Number one, the sovereign God chooses sinners. Sinners do not choose the sovereign God. He makes that clear. Secondly, if chosen by God, it is not because of a person's foreseen faith or good works or ethnic identity. Salvation is all of grace according to God's sovereign purpose of what? Election. Verse 11. Thirdly, we've learned in Romans 9 that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have compassion. Everyone, both Jew and Gentile, deserves what Sodom and Gomorrah received. And they deserve it fully and without delay. We all do. It's what we deserve. But by his grace, God saves many in his mercy through Jesus Christ. Fourthly, we learn from Romans 9 that God's sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. The two realities are taught side by side in Scripture, and so we believe it even though our finite minds fail to understand it fully. It's these truths and more that we have considered in our study of the first 29 verses of Romans chapter 9. But Paul is not finished. The apostle is not done. In the final four verses of this section, Paul provides a kind of summary answer or response to the question of whether God's word has failed in the case of Israel. As we will see, it's not God's word that has failed. It's Israel that has failed. How? By pursuing the law for a right standing with God, which is, by the way, an impossibility. Why? Because we are born in sin with a disease of sin, and we cannot measure up to God's standard of righteousness. And so to pursue the law as a means of salvation is the greatest foolishness in the world. And it's not only the Jews that were doing this, and many who still today are doing this, it's humanity. Jews and Gentiles are seeking through some form of, of their own constructed morality or some morality that comes through some religion, and they're working their way in their own minds up to God. 
But these things always fall short of God's glory. They always fall short of God's standard. And it's true here. By pursuing the law for a right standing with God, rather than believing in Jesus, and receiving his righteousness as a gift, apart from the law, which is a sinner's only hope of salvation, that is where Israel failed. In Luther's rhetoric, they chose a theology of glory over a theology of the cross. They chose works over grace. They chose their own personal righteousness, which is flawed, over the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They chose works over the cleansing blood of Jesus. We never want to be found in that place. Look with me again at verse 30. Paul then writes, What shall we say then? What shall we say then? He, he asked this question not to consider another objection uh, and to begin another line of argument as he does back in verse 14 where he uses the same language, but rather to summarize his teaching of God's faithfulness to his word and the gracious nature of salvation. Remember, over and over and over again, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, in these first nine chapters of Roman, Paul has been making really one main point, and that is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We add nothing to the grounds of our salvation. We've been given eternal life as a gift, full pardon for our sins and a, and a robe of righteousness. Ours, our robe of sin nailed to the cross, paid for by Jesus. Jesus gives us his righteousness and we have that robe. We don't add to that robe. We don't add accessories of our own righteousness because if we did, it would ruin the outfit. You know how it is, ladies, from time to time, you'll see someone walk through the door and say, oh, what a lovely dress. Oh, but those earrings, whoo, those don't go with that outfit. I know you do that sometimes. The accessories ruin the outfit. Why are you wearing that hat with that dress? Now, don't say that when you see someone walk into church and you, you think that, of course. But we, we, these things go through our mind, right? When we add the accessories of our own good works to the robe of Christ's perfect righteousness, thinking that, you know, this is kind of a partnership, a cooperation. Christ does this for me. I do this for him. And all of this is what makes me acceptable to God. That is a completely distorted view of the gospel. Paul is trying to help his own countrymen to see that the very one who can save them, they are rejecting. They are pursuing the law for righteousness' sake when the law was intended to show them their sin and their need for Christ. And it's not just the first century Jews who do this. People do it all the time, everywhere. It's the, it's the main response you'll get when someone responds with, to the question, why do you think God should let you into heaven? They say, well, because I've lived a pretty good life. I go to church. I'm baptized. I'm a, I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Lutheran. Of course I'm going to heaven. And we put our hope and our trust in these things. When these things are meant to point us to Christ, not replace him. 
Moreover, the apostle wants to show why Gentiles greatly outnumber the Jews in the burgeoning Christian church. This is what's happening, and, and Paul wants to explain why. And so he writes in verse 30, look there with me, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Here the apostle employs a metaphor. It's kind of a race metaphor. He uses uh, racing and running uh, all over uh, the New Testament as uh, metaphors and analogies. And, and here he does something similar, uh, though in a less explicit way. He says that uh, he uses this, this metaphor of hot pursuit to underscore the difference between Gentiles who were saved and, these, uh, and Israel who were not. The Gentiles, Paul explains, did not pursue righteousness. Notice that language there. The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness. That is, they did not pursue a right standing with God through obedience to the law. They didn't have the law. They had their idols. They had their, uh, their wicked living. But when Paul proclaimed the gospel, they received it. They weren't pursuing a righteousness unto salvation as was Israel. It just wasn't something that these idolatrous Gentiles were concerned about before they knew the Lord. But by God's sovereign grace, through faith, they attained a saving righteousness, a righteousness that would give them a right standing before God, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. They heard the gospel preached, they believed that gospel, and then they received forgiveness and righteousness. And here we must refer again to Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 3, which is a bit autobiographical in nature. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9. In the earlier part of Philippians 3, he talks about how he has all of these things on his spiritual resume that that uh, in many of the minds of his fellow countrymen would make him absolutely right with God. And, and what does he say about all of those things which he had, these spiritual privileges? He says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Now listen. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's the saving righteousness of Jesus Christ which gives us a right standing with holy God. Without that righteousness, all we have is our own failed attempts to obey the law 
and the mountain of our sin, and that is what we stand before the judgment seat of God with. A a tattered robe of unrighteousness and a mountain of guilt and sin. But united to Christ, by grace through faith, we know that this tattered robe of unrighteousness is, is nailed to the cross. We bear it no more. He's paid the full debt of our sins. Not most of it, all of it. And he has transferred to us his righteousness, our unrighteousness to Christ on the cross, Christ's righteousness, his perfect righteousness to us. And so now, united to Christ, we are no longer condemned. We are no longer cast out. Now we stand before God robed in the very righteousness of Christ, meeting God's standard of righteousness because of what Christ has done, not because of what we have done. Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is not a keep the law righteousness. This is a righteousness that comes as a gift, and the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, Romans 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe there is no distinction. And so when it came to the great race of pursuing righteousness through the law, the Gentiles never even started the race. They never even pursued the law. But by grace, they attained a righteousness through faith. And they were justified. They were justified. But Israel was different. Look with me at verse 31. Paul writes, But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness or a right standing with God did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. On works. Here, Paul portrays Israel as hotly pursuing the law for the purpose of being in a right standing with God, but unable to reach that goal. Unable to reach that goal. One commentator explains that Paul's metaphor, quote, pictures Israel running with great energy after the law's promise of righteousness and life to those who live by it, but failing to arrive at this goal. It pictures Israel running with great energy after the law's promise of righteousness and life to those who live by it, but failing to arrive at this goal. What Israel failed to understand is what so many today fail to understand. And that is that we cannot meet this standard. The only obedience that meets God's standard and attains eternal life is perfect and personal obedience. The only righteousness that fulfills God's requirements is a perfect righteousness. A perfect righteousness according to God's law in heart and life 
How could the just and holy God standard be anything less? Remember, he created Adam and Eve in the garden with original righteousness. There was perfect communion and fellowship with God. And when Adam and Eve fell, sin entered the world. God's standard did not change. In order to be in a right relationship with God, there must be this perfect righteousness. And God provides it in Jesus Christ. So many think of Christ only as it concerns his cleansing blood. But there's an important and essential part of our salvation in Christ that has to do with his righteousness given to us as a gift. Only Christ has this kind of righteousness. None of us do. And it is attained by faith in him. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 5, which we'll get to uh, in short uh, order, uh, and in Galatians 3.12, we learn that life comes through the law only if there is perfect obedience to the law. Paul essentially makes the argument in Galatians, oh, you want to be saved through the law? Then you must abide by all of it. And it must be without fault. What a burden. What a burden. But we know that Christ has this righteousness for us. If Israel would have pursued the law by faith, they would have understood that the law was there to expose their sin and point them to the Messiah. And that the law is not an end in itself. It's not a means of salvation. Beloved, the law is not a means of salvation. Our good works are not a means of salvation. Our spiritual heritage and family background are not means of salvation. It is only Christ who saves. Israel, in their hot pursuit of the law for righteousness, as though in a race, stumbled on the stumbling stone. Now, uh, those of you who are runners in this congregation can probably readily remember uh, times, uh, perhaps embarrassing times, when you stumbled and, and fell. Uh, I remember I was going out for a run last year uh, out on Sullivan's Island, and I was running uh, down one of the boardwalks, and there was a a few people walking on the side on the sand of the boardwalk, and I was running along, and I tripped and absolutely just bit the dust in front of them. Went down, tumbled. Oh, are you okay? I was like, oh, please, leave me alone. I'm okay. (laughs) I'm so so embarrassing, right? You just totally bite it right there, just stumbled. Um, the boardwalk is meant for walking, I guess. Uh, I was running and I stumbled. Uh, the, it's interesting, this language that, that, that Paul uh, refers to here uh, from the Old Testament. Look with me at verses 32 and 33. He says of Israel, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put To shame. Here, Paul masterfully brings together two different texts from the prophet Isaiah, rather. It's from Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14, and chapter 28 and verse 16. Isaiah 8, 14, and Isaiah 28, 16. Both of these passages from the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, refer to the Lord metaphorically as a stone. Uh, The first way he is referred to is as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense that Israel had stumbled over. 
The second, as a precious cornerstone that holds the house together and brings stability. The first relates to Israel's unbelief, the second to Gentile salvation. In their hot pursuit of acceptance with God through personal righteousness, that is, the observance of the law and meritorious works, Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone. And Christ is that stone. Jesus Christ is that stone. Rather than Christ being a cornerstone of salvation, he became a stumbling stone of judgment. And we see this language all over the New Testament. In Mark chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, in his parable of the tenants, Jesus quoted Psalm 18, 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In Acts 4.11, Peter is preaching to the Jewish council, and he quotes Psalm 118 as well, saying, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And in 1 Peter 2, 4-8, Peter highlights the same metaphor, calling Jesus a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He also quotes from Isaiah uh, 28 and Psalm 18 and Isaiah 8 to underscore Israel's unbelief and the sovereignty of God in the salvation of the Gentiles. Well, beloved, this is a lot. It's a wonderful, it's a glorious summary of what Paul has been saying all along in Romans chapter 9. But as we bring things to a close, we must ask ourselves a very important question. A question that this text begs of everyone sitting under the preaching of it. And that question is this. Am I hotly pursuing the law as a means of righteousness and salvation, as a way to acceptance with God? Am I trying to gain God's favor through good works? If so, if this is you, then Christ is not a savior to you, but a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Trusting in your own flawed righteousness. Any one of us trusting in our own flawed righteousness, in, in our own defective obedience, which falls immeasurably short of God's standard, will only leave us. It will only leave you in your guilt and sin before holy God. And dear friends, the only righteousness that succeeds in, quote, reaching the law is a perfect righteousness. And Christ provides it. He alone reached the law with his perfect life. He alone fulfilled all righteousness. And through the instrument of faith, we receive that perfect righteousness in union with him. And when we do, beloved, it is all of grace. It is all of grace. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. United to Christ, he is our chief cornerstone. United to Christ, we are justified. In him, we are safe. In him, we will never be put to shame, as is quoted here in verse 33. In Christ, the cornerstone, our future is secure. No matter what challenges, trials, or tribulations we may face. 
Beloved, when we wake up in the morning, our first thought shouldn't be, I hope that I'm able to meet God's standard of righteousness today in order to be accepted by him. Or at least get close so I can have some inkling of hope that he will love and accept me. When we embrace these truths, we recognize that when we wake up in the morning, united to Christ, we can declare with every other Christian and with all the departed saints above that Christ is our salvation, that in him we have full pardon for our sins, and in him we receive saving righteousness, which can never be taken away. Luther contrasted theologians of glory and theologians of the cross to to punctuate the fact that salvation is on God's terms and not man's. May we, therefore, Christ Church, by God's grace, be theologians of the cross. May we have a cruciform theology. May we be theologians of the cross, trusting not in ourselves or in our own defective spiritual strivings, but in Christ, the precious cornerstone. May we trust in Christ and his atoning blood. May we trust in Christ and his imputed righteousness. May we trust in Christ and his hell-conquering resurrection. May we trust in Christ as we wait for his imminent return. And may we love one another and be patient with one another as the Lord continues to work in us and through us by his Holy Spirit, that we would not walk as those who are self-righteous, but as those who are humble, serving Christ and one another. As we trust in Christ, as we find our life and salvation in him alone, may we seek first his glory in all things, living not according to this world and its values, but according to his word, even at all costs. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let us pray. Our Father, what a joy it is to reflect upon the unsearchable riches of Christ. Oh, to be robed in his very righteousness and to stand before you accepted into the beloved with the promise of everlasting life. Oh Lord, it makes the problems of this world fade, though they are real, and though pain and suffering and the trials and tribulations are real. We learn from Romans 8 that through them we are more than conquerors in Christ who loves us, who gave his life for us, who will never let us go. We thank you that nothing can separate us from his love. And we thank you that that love makes us secure and safe. Father, we thank you that Christ is our cornerstone and he holds our lives and our salvation together and he will never be removed. Oh Lord, help us to live with this confidence, to live by faith and not by sight, to cast our burdens upon you because we know you care for us. And oh Lord, we want to pray for Israel. Oh Lord, this is a terrible time as war has broken out. 
And of course, Lord, we are concerned for their physical welfare. But Lord, we pray in particular for their spiritual welfare. We pray for Israel, for the salvation of the lost, that you would bring many to yourself through the proclamation of the gospel. Be with those pastors and missionaries who are there sharing Christ. We pray that even now will be a time of revival and amongst these people. And we pray, Lord, as well uh, for those of the Hamas and those who are in their region who are suffering, suffering greatly because of the, of the great wickedness. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would, by your grace, be with those who know you and love you. And we pray that you would give your people zeal to share the gospel and to reach these enemies of the gospel with uh, the grace of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we commit these things to you. We, we commit our lives to you afresh. And we trust in you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.